You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my two good friends, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Hey, guys, good to see you on this. What day is it? Monday. It's Easter Monday. I have no idea. How are you doing, guys? Hey, I'm doing all right, Matt. It's good to see you. Good. Good to see you guys. Good, good to see you too. I'm glad we can make it back again. This has been great. We have a special guest on the show. We're going to start uh, with him. Uh, we've been trying to think, gosh, what, what, who can we have on that really can help us in this, in these difficult times? And man, uh, Mark showed up, uh, brought a, a friend over and a, a mentor over, uh, Dr. Abraham Nussbaum. Uh, he, I want to introduce him before he chimes in. Uh, I was reading over his bio. It's impressive. I'm excited to just learn from him and chat with him to see what's going on in his life. Uh, those kind of things. But just to give, give you a quick introduction, he currently serves as the chief education officer providing strategic vision, daily direction, and administrative oversight for Denver Health Health Professional Education Programs, which educates over 2,000 learners annually. He is the Denver Health Designated Institutional Officer for the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. So if you haven't got this already, the man knows how to teach. So uh, Colorado a native, which is really ex- exciting. You don't get those too often. You get a lot of people coming from here, but not natives. He studied literature and religion at Swarthmore uh, college, Swarthmore, I think, Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania and completed medical school at his psychiatry residency at the University of North Carolina. He has authored 26 peer, over 26 peer reviewed articles and six books. One such book I just heard about called The Finest Traditions of My Calling, One Physician's Search for the Renewal of Medicine. So this, this gentleman has many accolades uh, that go on for quite a long time. So I'm excited to introduce him to the show. Dr. Nussbaum, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. So I kind of want to start off this a little bit. Uh, it, it, it doesn't doesn't need to be stated, but this is obvious that we're kind of facing some unprecedented global trials right now. I mean, uh, globally, I mean, not just in this country, the financial pressure I'm seeing and find my Facebook friends losing jobs right and left. I just saw another good friend being furloughed and the pressures that go on with that, especially if they have family and they have kids. The social isolation, we are now, I don't know how many weeks in, which I really feel like it's leading to like anthropophobia. Anthropophobia, is that right? Anthropophobia, where I'm literally afraid of human beings, Dr. Nussbaum. Like I I go outside to get the mail and I like look left and right trying to figure out, is anybody out there? And I dash to get the mail and run back in. And so this is going on in my life. The fear of the unknown, which I think particularly in the U.S., we struggle with this idea because we're all about trying to control. We feel like we have a sense of control the lack of control that we're feeling, the fear of illness uh, and death. So we have all this going on right now. And I just, I want to talk about what what's going on. What do you see going on in your practice? What do you see as an individual? And basically, how can we help ourselves, help other other people? I was, you know, we were talking just before the show about my experience the other night. We were having a date night. So my date night for my wife and I means we just put the beds, put the boys bed as quickly as humanly possible and get frustrated they don't go to bed. And then uh, go run downstairs and try to watch a movie before they wake up and eating us. And we were watching a movie from 2010, and I, there was this episode. It was, a, it, was a, it was a comedy, and they they were in the hospital having a baby, and it was great. And all of a sudden, this guy shook this person's hand, like, "What are you doing?" You know. So I'm like, I'm like, okay, this is really having a, a huge impact on me. Only only a few weeks in, so toss this back to you. Uh, in light of your, your psychiatry and your teaching, what are you seeing? Uh, what do you what are you seeing happening right now within your own practice? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I would say that as a psychiatrist, we know that life events affect mental health. And we know that different kinds of life events affect mental health differently. So in the psychiatric literature, if you look at life events like loss, 
humiliation, entrapment, danger. They lead to different kinds of psychiatric symptoms. Today, I think you have to think about danger. And in the psychiatric literature, we define danger as this kind of level of potential future loss, including the possibility that some sort of traumatic event will occur that you don't know or can't really see. And in particular, it's these ones where the full threat or the dire outcome hasn't yet been realized. And we know that people who experience a life event of danger are at dramatically increased risk of having generalized anxiety disorder. And I would say that's what we're all struggling with. Part of what's hard about this is that it's not like a predictable outcome. We don't know exactly how far it's going to hit, whom it's going to hit, and how it's going to change our society. But guaranteed, it will change our society. Today, the change is that we've effectively created an anxiogenic society. Mm. Everything about this increases anxiety. The question is what we do during that time and what comes next after the anxiogenic period ends. Okay, going right into it then. You're talking about like, well, how do we respond to this? Like, It feels like there's like an inundation. It's one thing to kind of suffer. I mean, gosh, I'm not going to... Uh, oversimplify this in other people's lives, but to experience one, you know, one particular trauma, which has its own ramifications. But I feel like there's like this bombardment from every single direction of, of a threat. And how do you even begin to cope with something like this when you feel like, okay, I don't even know if my, my job's going to be around three weeks from now. I can't even see my family. I'm worried about my mother-in-law, you know, I don't even know about the future. And then you have this like crazy thing of like we're like, I don't know if the germs are gone. Like I've wiped them five thousand times. I don't know. So there's this, there's this like complete like feel like even in your home, your own home, there's a lack of control, right? So there's a there's just the danger is all around. And in your experience, are there what what can we do to help keep ourselves grounded so that we don't fall into this sense where we feel like we 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 do need really strong professional help, and maybe even even some, some, some medicine to help us. Yeah, I'd say that the thing is, if you live in an anxiogenic age, you've got to turn off anything that's driving anxiety, right? So you want to do things like limit the things that are sources of stress. Another thing you want to do is to break isolation, but not distancing, right? You want to maintain a routine. You want to focus and think about what are the benefits of isolation. And then if that doesn't work, you should seek professional help. So let me explain what I think those things mean, right? So limit sources of stress. One of the things that I think is is important for people to remember is that contemporary media and technology is designed to hijack the dopamine centers of your brain. It's designed to be hard to put down. All of the people who design social media spent time with neuropsychologists thinking about how to make them as sticky as possible. And so you have to walk away from them because you'll never truly be satisfied. And today, their driving looks by keeping people anxious. So one thing I do is I don't spend much time on social media. And I recommend that people limit their consumption of the news. And that when they do engage in news, they engage in evidence-based news sources, particularly those that lead with something they can control. So it can become more important to read some combination of local news, but especially local news. And think about things that you can do locally. The next thing is to break isolation. I think that one of the things that's been so difficult about this is that the the most effective treatment we have right now for COVID is being called social distancing. And to be clear, I think it is critical and it is the single most effective treatment we have today. But I lament the name because what it really means is physical distancing, but it doesn't have to mean social isolation. You and I can talk on the phone. 
you're somebody I've never met before. I accepted the chance to talk to you because I want to be social in this time. Right. Um, my daughter, uh, is a seven year old and she, and I talk about different generations. Um, her grandparents are baby boomers. I'm Gen X. Her brother's, her uncle, excuse me, is millennial. And she's Gen Z. And she says, I never knew what Gen Z stood for. But now I've decided that it stands for Generation Zoom because that's where I meet all my <laughs> and And I was like, first of all, you've just written your first op-ed. Good job, kid. Um, and, and second of all, like, that's right. But she can be reassured because she can still be social. So she can check in with her teachers. She can send a card to people. The mail's still running. There are amazing things that are still occurring that allow you to engage with other people in a human way, right, mm-hmm. that, that don't involve social isolation. And I would say that one of the things we know is this is the way that people communicated for millennia. Mm-hmm. It is very rare for people to have as many close personal contacts as Facebook allows. Yeah. But the post works fine. <laughs> and then the other thing I said was, was that you want to think about how to maintain a routine. Now more than ever, it makes sense to say, I'm going to map out some things that I can do to give my life structure. That's one of the hardest things for us as my wife's a physician. We're also parents. And one of the hardest things is that the routine for our children is gone. So one of the things we have to do is to reinstate a routine. So we write out a list of things they're going to do during the day and times of the day before we leave them um, because they need a routine. But that's true for adults, too. And then the other things I suggested is that you focus on the benefits of isolation. Um, I have seen some benefits of this pandemic. There's, I correct me. There's no benefits to a pandemic, but there is some benefits to this change in life. And one of them, at least for me, is that it helps you to prioritize what's most important. And I find myself engaging in trivial chores. I've been restoring old tools in my garage that I would never have done. But you have time on a night of isolation, and it's something you can control. It helps if you have some locus of control, some small thing you can do every day, because you can't stop a worldwide pandemic by yourself. So those are some things we think about doing, is trying to regain a sense of agency where you can, and a sense of connection. Yeah, I love that, list. That's super helpful in, in a real concrete way. A very challenging time, though. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And I, I love what you said about the routine. I'm a, I'm definitely, I can feel it. I mean, I have three, three boys, they're five, uh, four and two. And I think they were, they were literally, uh, brought to us to, uh, threaten every possible routine in our life. Uh, and, uh, they <laughs> do, especially when they're boys, they're, 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 they they just don't. Yeah. Uh, and then, and I, and just in trying to establish routine, it's just really been hard. And we can tell, we sense this uh, when we're in Mark and Steven, you guys can chime in as well. Yeah. When we, when we have the routine with the boys down, we have the space to like, you know, we've mentioned the show before, not only the, um, uh, the, the routine, but gosh, to really find ourselves to, to carve out some margin in our life, to be able to, to even think about, right. What are the opportunities that I have right now? And that there are a number. Exactly. Dr. Nussbaum, I get to hang out with you for like 15 minutes. I didn't even know you existed, you know, like, you know, three days yeah. ago. And now because of this, we get that. And uh, this is just a great opportunity. And for us not to just look, as you said, gosh, what was it? There was something you were saying, but to look, to look for the opportunities and uh, that it's so easy to get sucked into this. Oh my gosh, how long are we going to be in this? And I don't know what to do. And we're just fixated on the tragedy 
of what we're in and 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 just skipping right on by about the new possibilities that afford me uh, my family get to hang out with my boys more often which drives me uh insane and makes me incredibly happy all at the same time uh and so all of these things are just great i'm so thankful you put this in a nice little uh four kind of main points to help us kind of break out of this i would say it, it really does provide that opportunity and one of the things that people need to remember is we have most americans have lived their lives in this extraordinarily rare historical moment where there was effective treatment for infectious disease and there were not pandemics in the united states but over the course of human history that's really a rarity and societies throughout the world, including still today in most of the developing world, have developed cultural responses to a pandemic. Part of the trouble is that we've lost that memory. You know, if, if, when I was a kid, I would talk to my grandmother and she would talk about polio or the scarlet fever or when measles would come to town. And they had a cultural way of responding. One of the challenges we have today is that we've lost that. And every, if you look back at history, Every epidemic chooses a society. There's reasons why this society is susceptible to coronavirus and not to other kinds. It's not susceptible to dengue fever in the same way. Sure. But there's also going to be ways that epidemics will change in society. And, and we're seeing that already in the hospital. You know, there's all sorts of things that we're doing, even in just our mental health services, that are different. Some of those changes needed to occur. Some of them are deeply uncomfortable and unwelcome. But we have to think about how we're going to respond to microbes because they're always with us. <laughs> yeah. um, and, yeah. and we have to live through epidemics, unfortunately. I mean, that all of that really resonates with my experience, both at home and in the hospital. Um, this idea, I've been thinking a lot, especially over the Easter weekend, we were making Easter bread, which is a, you know, kind of an Italian, old Italian recipe from my great aunt in Pueblo and, and thinking about her and the things that she lived through um, and the ways that that is that sort of this embodied, both an embodied memory and a cultural memory, right? Of how do we encounter hardship? How do we prepare? Um, how do we cycle through our food supplies so that if our food supply gets interrupted for two weeks, um, we're okay and we can provide for our families. Um, and just the, you know, the very basic level of prudence that's involved in that. Um, and yet it uh, sort of has, has these fruits throughout your life about the ways that you arrange your life and prepare for hardship and, and are able to reach out and support your neighbors uh, in a beautiful way so that I, and i think thinking of it as memory too is just such a uh it's it's a it's nice because i think we you know we remember remember the hard times but we also remember these really beautiful instances in our lives um and kind of have it how do we how do we regain sort of a cultural sense and, and how do we make some of these memories good ones um and and positive ones you know? yeah i i think that's right i think that there's a way in which a crisis can be a schoolhouse of virtue Mm. where you learn exactly what matters to you, mm. right? Um, and, and I would say, you know, we had an interesting experience with our son, and I, and I probably should have cleared it before I tell you some of these stories. But he's <laughs> an awesome kid. He's an awesome kid. He, but he's, he's also deeply 16. And I, and I won't say why, but he's gotten grounded uh, right before this. And he, he got off grounding, and then three days later, they put in shelter-in-place orders. <laughs> and initially, he was really sullen about it because he's like, great. My parents have engineered an entire worldwide pandemic <laughs> just to keep me from Like it was some sort of global conspiracy of all the adults in the world to keep teenagers having fun. And, and, but fairly quickly, 
he came out of it and he realized he's like, okay, I'm going to learn different things. And he came to my mother, excuse me, my wife and said, I'd like to learn to cook and sew. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and he'd never asked us that before. Yeah. Because he's 16 and appropriately, he would rather be with his friends than with his parents. But now he can't. So to the extent that he can, he has a couple of friends whose parents will let him take long walks together. So they do that. And then he started cooking dinner every night. He'd never made anything more than a quesadilla. And the other night, he curried cauliflower with eggs. Like, okay, great, good for you. He fried chicken. You know, he made a fruit salad. He's cooking like three-course meals. And he applied for jobs. And he would go online and apply for jobs. He'd go because he's 16 and he needed summer jobs. And he'd go online and he'd apply for summer jobs and he'd hear nothing or a little something. And he just didn't look like he was going to have a job. And then it became clear that the neighbor behind our alley um, had all of his employees had been sent home. And the guy makes uh, medical supplies. And all of a sudden, the shop was in his entire business was in his garage. Well, Eamon walked over and said, are you looking for workers? And he said, yeah, I need workers. So he, he got a job. And then he did he needed more workers. So he got his best friend hired. Well, he's figuring out now how to get a job during the pandemic in our back in the alley with his best friend. So he figured out a way to be able to hang out with his best friend and get a job. Mm-hmm. And honestly, he wouldn't have done that. Um, and it, it's pretty cool to see him kind of working on some of those things, mm-hmm. um, and which is not to say this is all rosy, but it is to say that dealing with um, infectious diseases on a large scale is part of life. Uh, and we've forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, to that point, too, I think, you know, one of the things that's been on my mind from a clinical medicine standpoint is the ways that pandemic is sort of a limit case of health and disease, right? That we have health, there there are infectious diseases, and, and diseases and our, our frailty is with us all the time. And there's a strange way in which this we're, we're experiencing it all together at once in a very unprecedented way. Um, but at the same time, the, some of the stories there are the same stories that we've been telling ourselves and experiencing about health and disease for a long, long time. Um, and I think medicine, you know, one of the things I love to engage with Abraham about is about medicine itself um, and the ways that it it's such a complex social phenomenon to begin with, you know. And But I think medicine as much as we as individuals is having a hard time wrapping its head around or hard time kind of understanding how to approach this because it's such a strange and unprecedented case. Um, so I, I'd love to hear, you know, any thoughts that you have of just sort of about how, how it's unprecedented in what ways and, and how we see medicine kind of, you know, succeeding or not quite succeeding in an appropriate response. You mentioned how things change. Um, you were kind enough to mention a book I wrote. And the woman who's my editor at my publisher flew to town for a conference right at the beginning of this. And the conference got canceled. So she had some time to kill. So she looked me up and we hung out and went to lunch. And we asked each other what projects she was working on. And she said, I got this book that I just published that's going to prove to be really prescient. And I want to send you a copy. So she did. She sent me a copy of this book by a professor named Frank Snowden called Epidemics in Society. And I read it. And it was just fascinating to read how epidemics affect society. And one of the things that he makes an argument in there is, is what I stole a little bit earlier in this conversation, which is this idea that every society gets the epidemic it was designed for. It doesn't realize it was designed for, but it was. And if you think about it, 
we are a society that has mistakenly believed that health was a commodity. And if you believe that, you set up health systems that are designed to provide differential services for those with and without means and to focus on providing high-cost services that generate revenue. Well, part of what's interesting is we have not designed a system for infectious disease and public health control. Even when somebody like Snowden lays out very clearly that the CDC, the CIA, the Department of Defense, public health experts all knew that something like this would come. SARS was a coronavirus. It revealed all of these weaknesses in our system. SARS was less contagious, but more lethal. But it's a similar sort of story. My point is this. We're seeing in hospitals that what they were designed for is all gone away. And the stuff that's somewhere deep in their history, even if it's unconscious, is the stuff that they're doing now. And and different people have different roles in that context. So all of a sudden, you're seeing this return to almost like plague costumes. And that's what PPE is. It's an old version of the plague doctor costume. Um, and it becomes just as important, but also just as symbolic. And, and I would say that it's fascinating to see what matters in a pandemic. And it's probably a good sign that those are the things that really do matter. I have colleagues who say, once this stops, we'll go back to doing the same number of elective surgeries you report. All the patients will come back and we'll get that revenue. But the older heads in the hospital, and often the wiser ones say, no, no, it's, it's not going to be quite the same as before. Many of those patients who you thought needed a surgery or you thought needed medical care will just never come back. And instead, you don't know where they'll go. It's just that we have constructed a certain version of medicine that they needed in one time, and it's not the medicine we need now. Yeah, there's definitely a clarifying of of mission that I've felt. You know, there's a, there's a lot of anxiety in on the wards. There's a lot of um, it, just a cognitive over kind of burden to the personal protective equipment to this fear of contagion to sort of the news that we're seeing from, especially from places that are very severely taxed uh, from a healthcare standpoint. And all of that's very, very real. Um, There's also been um, kind of a a return in a certain way to a a certain type of uh, corporate mission, you know, that I feel among some of the doctors that I'm working with um, in which we're kind of united in this, uh, this endeavor together. And there's something about that too that's really enlivening um, to the practice of medicine. I totally agree. We've had great um, success in that way. And it's been heartening to see the ways in which people who had um, differences of opinion because they worked for different teams are all of a sudden working on a common team. I love what you said, uh, Abraham, and uh, about, you know, you took it from that book about we all kind of get the epidemic or that, we're, that we are getting for the society and not only from the medical industry, but I'm just thinking even from my own self, like it's, uh, okay, I, I don't mean to put this in, in this perspective. It's going it's to sound terrible and it's really not meant to be. I feel like the pandemic is like a spouse. And and the reason and the reason why and I don't mean this in like don't think I'm thinking about my first stuff. I'm not trying to say that, right? With my with my beautiful wife, like there are things by which she stirs up that I have no capacity to surrender. Like, you know, empathy, not my best virtue, but she is she ensures that that it's cultivated on some level and calls me out. And it's the point where it's like it's hard for me to show emotion sometimes, right? And so there's this there's this there's this thing that I'm I struggle with where it's being called out to do something new that I do not have. 
so where am I going with this? I feel this in the same way right now with the pandemic. Like I am being emptied in a profound way. And I, I but the, here's the thing. I have no idea where this is going for me. Like something is new is shifting in my life. And I feel this kind of like almost like bottled up, but I don't know how to respond. I don't know what emotion it's cultivating, what sense of freedom it's, it's, cult, it's cultivating. But it is like this, like, so I feel like in some sense, whether you're single or not, you're, you're, you're single or not, there's some kind of like spousal imagery right now that you're, that you're participating in. That's, that, that it's, and I, I don't want this for the world. Again, I'm not trying to make light of this by any means, but the opportunity that it's calling us out of something profound and something new, but I don't know exactly what that is. And I think that part it vexes me. Uh, I'm being changed. Society is being changed. The medical industry is being changed. Maybe you guys have a better idea of where the medical industry is going, but I have no clue yeah. where I'm going. I think there's some, I think there's at least one thing that I'm fairly, two things I'm fairly certain will occur. One is I think there will be more telehealth. I think that was something that had been uh, a desire for, had been pent up and it hadn't occurred. And I think that's going to happen. You've seen the federal government and the regulators release restrictions on that. And I think that'll be here to stay. I think that the number of in-person visits is going to decrease. Um, I, and I think that's hard. I'm not, that's not an easy or um, uncomplicated move, but I think that will occur. I think the second thing that's likely to occur out of this, I hope, is that there will be a greater attention to public health and the importance of having being prepared for the next pandemic, because there's always a next one. That's one of the things you can be sure of. There are these documents you can read where, in the 60s, people truly believed that we had beaten all infectious diseases in the Western world. But it's this act of extraordinary hubris. And, and I, so I think those are two things that are likely to occur. Um, the rest of it is, is really unsure. Will we embrace xenophobia? Will we stigmatize folks? There's science fiction scenarios that seem plausible. Um, you know, there are all kinds of other things that I, I don't know. But I'm fairly certain that telehealth and a, and a renewed uh, appreciation of public health will occur. Those are the only two things I'm, I'm fairly sure. Great. Mark, what do you think? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I think I definitely agree with that. It's been interesting to see the ways that telehealth has um, very rapidly over a matter of weeks um, really blossomed and changed the ways that uh, I think on a, on a certain level, there was an understanding that a lot of what is done in the clinical visit can be done in sort of a remote way, but as you said, it's not uncomplicated. And I think there's um, there's just a lot of discussion to be had, which maybe we can bracket to another time. My hope is that we can capitalize on the the increase in telehealth to also further increase the amount of um, kind of attentive care that we're able to provide in person in those cases in which it really matters. Um, and, but that's a whole whole other conversation, uh, you know, for another time. I think too, and I, and I'm interested to hear kind of what all of you think. Stephen, I know is you know would be uh, hopeful for a time in which we have a greater public health and and just kind of a greater population health awareness and sense. Um, also, I think just sort of an, a, a kind of an in embodied sense of responsibility to each other, you know, responsibility to our vulnerable populations that are going to be hit harder by this type of event always. Um, and th how do we reconstruct a system in which uh, that, that, impact you know we, we how do we you know how do we minimize that impact in the future how do we foreground public health um you know for all of our neighbors i think is is a point of active discussion um so those i yeah just kind of echoing i guess what you're saying but uh it'll be be interesting to see how things shape up steven everything 
Yeah, I mean, I think just sort of going off of some of the things that we were just saying, I think that I mean, I imagine that this this pandemic will have, as we were saying, a profound impact on on medicine and on our own personal lives. Um, but sort of circling back to something that Abraham was saying from the start, I'll be really interested to see just how sort of this affects our collective cultural experience of uh, of crisis and of just sort of uh, of of how we go about our day-to-day lives and, and like what, what will sort of be the cultural response to this. Um, and I've, I've sort of been thinking about this on a couple of levels. I mean, I appreciate that, uh, that you mentioned the, um, hopefully a, an increased, um, appreciation for and sense of need for public health and population health. And I think that that'll absolutely happen. Um, but I think that oftentimes, especially in the face of crisis, the, the people who are first to sort of begin to wrap their hands around just like what exactly has happened are like the artists and philosophers. Um, and I'll be really interested to see just sort of what happens with art and poetry and music over the next couple of years. And like, how do they start to make sense of this thing that has sort of collectively happened to us all? Um, and then in philosophy, like how do we begin to sort of question this, this sort of notion that it seems like we've had over time that, that sort of these large multinational systems are sort of too big to fail. It's sort of like the sociopolitical version of the Titanic, right? Or it's like too big to sink, you know, but, but now this is, you know, it, it takes something of the scale of this pandemic for us to really start to question that and wonder, you know, like, is, is there some value to sort of a new type of value to to local engagement to to sort of you know the economies of our community and um, and interpersonal interactions that we've sort of been been lacking in this time um, so I'll be really interested to just sort of see how you know and even the practice of science you know the fact that you know maybe conferences will become more remote and that'll open up accessibility to all sorts of knowledge and learning to people who might not have been able to to access it before so I think that there there could be this profound sort of I, on the one hand, you could call it an upheaval in society, but I think that that there's the possibility for some of these really positive changes. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll be very interested to see where it goes. And I, I, Abraham, I really appreciate your insights on this. And yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I think that large-scale conferences, that's not a business I'd want to be in. <laughs> I think that's likely to change. Um, and I would tell you that I think um, all of these changes are going to occur. This will be uh, an inflection point in our lives um, because these kind of pandemics have been going on for a long time. But this is one that's hitting home, um, and it's led to different fashion accessories, right? The mask is this year's fashion accessory, mm-hmm. and it's it's led to different kinds of fears. And I think part of what's hard about this is that it's the fear of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's also the upside of that, though, is there's an awareness that we that our health depends upon the health of other people. Yeah, and that is um, something that everyone should take away, not just in a pandemic, but all the time. As a psychiatrist, I can show you the flip side of infectious disease numbers, which is that the people you surround yourself with constitute who you are on some level. Mm. The friends you make, the people, the company you keep, um, we are vulnerable to each other all the time, and we are responsible for each other. And that is the good news, is that a pandemic reminds you of that. Mm. Um, and the, the behavior that seems virtuous in this is the times when people are leaning into that care for each other. And the behavior that seems scandalous is the behavior where people are saying, I'm, I will not be vulnerable to others. I will use my privilege as a chance uh, to be freed from vulnerability. Um, and the best part of this is the way that people think, I, I belong to the other. Abraham, that's a great way to end this. I love how you took this from just simply a medical, just uh, infectious disease to the psychologist dimension that, yes, you are the average of the people you surround yourself with. I mean, that's powerful. 
and that this uh, hopefully that it reconsiders uh, offers a reconsideration to so many people and their friends and their networks and their family and to really look deeply into who who am I, where do I want to be, and who do I want to surround myself with? I mean, people who are really great. This is why I had the podcast, guys. I want to hang with Abraham. I want to hang with Matt. I want to hang with Stephen. These are the people that I want to hang with because they're good men, and there's good people out there that I know other people have and that haven't connected with in years. And now you're home. You nothing else to do. There you go. Let's and go. so while I'm at work. Uh, we, you know, I'm an essential employee, so we're in the hospital. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. calling you from the hospital. Sure, Mark's so. in the hospital. Yeah, and so, but the thing is, lean into those friendships, lean into those people you know, but also make a friend you don't know. Make a friend you don't know, yeah. um, and think particularly try to make a friend who's vulnerable. Think about somebody in your life who's elderly, who's marginalized, and see if you can enlarge your circle of friendship to include them. Abraham, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, if people want to get in contact with you, connect with you, what is the best way that they could possibly connect with you? Oh, like else, every self-aggrandizing physician writer, I maintain a personal website. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can Google me online and there's a website. It has the unlikely URL name of www.abrahamnussbaum.com. You know, as you might be surprised, it was available. Wow. There weren't uh, other people walking on that one. I'm surprised, Abraham, because I, I looked at mattbotker.com, which you think would be similar, and it's taken. It is taken. Yeah. So, good work. I got this one. Good work. Yeah. Now I'll, now you have to do is spell it. Bumper <laughs> yeah. stickers are not forthcoming. No, so. not. Well, the good news is we'll put it in the show notes so that if anybody wants okay. to connect, they can immediately just click on it, go straight there, get information. We'll put a, uh, also a link to his book as well on the Amazon link as well. So check that as well. Uh, again, thank you, Abraham, for coming on. And I hope you have an awesome, great day. You too. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Peace, everyone. All right. Take care. Well, he's great. I, I really enjoy it. I mean, I think um, he's really enriched the way that I think about medicine, health, and disease um, and, and definitely embodies what I would hope for in a clinician who I had for myself um, in a yeah. sense of just an integrated life um, in medicine. So, uh, yeah, it was great to have him on. Hey, we got yeah. some big news for Steven. We had a we had a teaser last last week that we couldn't couldn't say what it was. Um, but I think it's official now, right? Steven, you want to tell us what's up? That's right. Yeah. So um as as Matt has been saying, I've I've been largely living my life in a cave over the last couple of <laughs> weeks, months or so. Um trying to get this paper written up. Um and it finally did get written up and accepted. So that'll be uh published, I think, tomorrow morning in science. So we're looking forward to getting that out and uh, hopefully, hopefully get, getting some people to read it, and ideally the people who uh, are you know involved in doing some of the response to this. So, okay, so I almost want to put a pause on this because I'm the one who doesn't know anything about anything when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I need to have Mark because I know Stephen is never going to praise himself. So I have to put Mark. Science is this is this a big deal, Mark, or is this just like uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, good. It's and uh, and I'll preface everything I'm about to say just by the statement that I taught him everything he knows. Um, <laughs> and so that um, so, so you know, journals have different different impact factors and different levels of uh, sort of influence within the scientific community. Um, and so while there's lots and lots of peer reviewed journals, um, science is like the, which essentially the top publication for the type of article that he is 
he's presenting. And it's really, I think the exciting thing um, for me is that the hope is that a, an article of that magnitude may have some policy effects and may have some um, real concrete implications in what's going on in the real world in real time. Um, and so it's huge, you know, it's a very, very big deal. And Stephen just tons of congratulations that's that's the fruit of you know he, he we say he's been living in a cave for the last week or so which is true but it's really been like four or five years you know that he's, he's been yeah. work, he's been really working hard and just kind of refining um and uh you know going through his phd process and, and even his undergrad work and uh, and this is just a very very uh, beautiful kind of achievement in the midst of all of that hard work um so it's great to take a minute to to say congrats well, thanks so much, guys. And uh, you know, Mark, you're absolutely right in that. And, you know, I've had especially a lot of incredible mentors, I think some of whom actually listen to this podcast. And so, okay. um, I, yeah, I'm just like super appreciate, you know, all of the, all, all the, all the people who have helped me along the way. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, this is, this is a team effort, you know, and, uh, and it has been all the way through. So, um, can, yeah, can you give us a quick two hits? Like what are the, the main big um, things that we could look for if we read that article, like what are the questions that you're asking, engaging? Yeah. So we were basically, um, with this article, trying to understand what's going to happen over the next few months and potentially over the next few years with the transmission of the, of the epidemic. So just trying to lay out scenarios so that we can sort of set a framework for like how we can think about this thing. And then hopefully in response, how we can respond. So uh, so the first half of the paper kind of takes the five-year sort of global perspective. And so what's what could happen and what sorts of information do we need to know to know whether we're going to get sort of recurrent wintertime outbreaks of this epidemic, how frequent they're going to be, how intense they're going to be, um, and what we need to know to know whether or not that's going to be the case. Uh, and then uh, And then we sort of took a closer look at the epidemic wave that's happening right now. Um, to look at sort of what's the effect of social distancing, um, how how intensely will we need to do social distancing, for how long will we need to repeat periods of social distancing, and what are the different implications of that? So we haven't taken any sort of like economic perspective yet, or um, you know, any we haven't really endorsed any specific policy, but really, you know, um, my uh, the the mentor I'm working with here, Mark Lipsich frequently says that mathematics is really just a way to think really clearly about something. And so really what we were trying to do with this is, is to use mathematical models to think really clearly about what's happening and what we don't know so that we can sort of, uh, sort of maximize sort of our, our, our research in the mid, uh, in the immediate term to, to understand what's going to happen, uh, in the middle and long term. That sounds great. Again, uh, I'll toast my Topo Chico to a little bit of clarity. Right about now. How about that? <laughs> All right. That sounds great. <laughs> we'll clink across the, oh, the yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll take my water. My hydrate's <laughs> perfect. <though. laughs> Stephen, congratulations. This is awesome. Uh, we'll, if we can, uh, we'll put those links into the show notes of uh, yeah. when it's published or available. Uh, Absolutely. So have access to read those, uh, which would be great. Um, I, we won't spend too much more time. We spent a lot of time with Abraham, and that was great. Uh, just a few few things that I saw in the uh, in the news today that I wanted to bring out. Just one thing I was really personally excited about. Uh, Mark and Steven, do you guys see that uh, that Apple and Google are coming together uh, to create an app, uh, which seems pretty phenomenal and could have uh, just a, a huge a huge answer to some really big questions of like, <laughs> am I around someone? who has or has had, uh, you know, the coronavirus. So if you haven't, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's good to see Apple and Google working together. I mean, this just mm -hmm. shows you the nature of the, the business we're in. Uh, they have very different paradigms by which they they do their business. So uh, it's, it's basically a, a way by which you can have an app. You have to have the app. And uh, if you are around someone who ends up being infected, 
that uh, that person, as long as they go in the app and say, hey, I, I tested positive, it will have a, a very private key. So it's it's definitely privacy forward uh, that it will send out to all the people that he was that they were close to walking around outside uh, and give them like a notification. I'm guessing it'd be something almost like those Amber Alerts kind of thing that pop up and let you know that you were around someone, uh, which I think this will be a great next step. Uh, when it comes to awareness. Yeah, and I don't know if Stephen, do you know much? So Stephen was involved in a you know cell phone proximity project in England when he was doing his PhD, actually. And it's and you can check out. There's a BBC documentary that they did about this project that I think may still be lurking in the the dark hallways of YouTube somewhere. <laughs> um, and so if if you're if you're into that and you're really bored, uh, actually, it's a great. I, I thought it was it was great, but it's you know it is what it's it is what it is. It's a math BBC documentary, so that's right. So that, there you have that. But um, but there this it's just interesting. I don't know. Stephen had used some of these proximity stuff, or his group um, at Cambridge had used some of this cell phone data proximity stuff to. Pre- make a pretend outbreak in the United Kingdom and then check the results. And so there's some, uh, some precedent for this. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's pretty exciting to see, you know, I think that, you know, getting the weight of Apple and Google behind this is really the best way to sort of take it forward. But, um, but yeah, these are, these are sorts of ideas that, that we've been having in the, in the epidemiology community for a while. And so it's going to be pretty cool to see this implemented at a larger scale. That's awesome. Well, you know what? We'll put those. Uh, Stephen, you want to send that to me so I can put in the show notes or whoever has that BBC link yeah. or wherever on YouTube. Uh, yeah, we'll put that. Totally. So we'll that. Um, you know, the, uh, one more thing. There's a lot of things I want to I want to chat about. We're not going to today. We'll send it. To, uh, we'll see it for Thursday. Uh, just there's stuff on <laughs> disinfecting groceries and just this idea of, OK, well, let's take a step back. Let's relax. Uh, it was a great NPR uh, uh, article up in the show notes as well about, you know what? We don't have to be so obsessive about this. Let's take a step back. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that uh, we can we can wrap ourselves into, and it just causes more, I think, damage in the end. Uh, just spending your whole day trying to <laughs> sanitize the world and uh, and to reallocate those resources to more powerful and meaningful things, like what Abraham said, maybe connecting with someone you haven't connected with in a long while. And I think that's where our mind needs to go. That's where we need to be forward thinking about, and not so much as reactive of how we can like control every possible part of our environment. Last thing I want to say before we end is, do you guys see this, that the blood tests uh, coming out uh, pretty on a large scale uh, for, I don't know who's doing this. Did you guys see anything about this, about who who was doing this and and how it's going to be administered? No? Okay. No, I haven't. I, yeah, I've, I've heard so many different uh, different you know people who are sort of right on the threshold, but it sounds like this might be a step further, but I, I think I'm just one step behind, unfortunately, yeah. so I can't speak <laughs> to that. You're, you're entitled to that. I think <laughs> I did see that article come out, the the uh, this Wild West article or concern that it's going to be kind of like open the floodgates. And yeah, I, I did think it was interesting. There's a follow-up on our Telluride story that um, a lot of that testing didn't actually get run or hasn't been run yet, or it's been super delayed. And, you know, it's, it's the same old story, which is that um, resource allocation um, is so, so crucial to the, and where we put our resources and how we deal with that. And um, to hope for kind of a, you know, a magical technological cure in any, any degree where it's just, it's these basic resources and putting our personal and intellectual resources in the places they need to be. uh, That's really going to make the difference. It just kind of, I feel like, we're going to land on this because I think that was a great way to tie things in. You probably didn't think so. But I'm thinking, gosh, we have all the technology in the world, Stephen and Mark. But the thing is, we need a swab. We need a swab to be able to make technology. Yeah. And this yeah. goes back to the same thing with like Abraham. I feel like we have all these advancements of how we're going to get to the pandemic. But the most important thing are the basics. I need a friend. I mean, I, I need I need a connection. 
right? Um, no, and I think that's the most important thing. So I want to end on that, guys. I hope you enjoyed this this episode. Uh, I I got a lot out of it. I'm probably going to replay it myself and listen to it, not to hear my own voice, but to listen to Abraham. And I'm going to have him lull me to sleep. Tonight, right? <laughs> so, with that last part, I thought it was a really good, good uh, interview. I appreciate him so much. I hope to get the chance to get to know him a little bit more. There's nothing to speak on on being grounded. Uh, Abraham has said it all. We'll try to have him back again sometime on like a 10-minute episode just to give us a sense of grounding and how to, how to get the right perspective. Um, again, if you have any questions for uh, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter, uh, any questions or uh, anything for the podcast, it's M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R. What I didn't say, hopefully you hung on to the end, really important as well. If you can't offer a $5, $10 a month donation, we'd really appreciate to help us get more stuff available to work out the kinks, which we still even have today. Uh, you can do that at pandemic, I'm sorry, not pandemic, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash pandemic podcast. You can give a small donation. We greatly appreciate it. If you want to know information about my living, the real website, about being grounded, really trying to see on a, on a larger scale how to live the most real life possible in the, in the, in the area of leisure, labor, uh, uh, love, uh, go ahead and connect, you can connect there uh, at uh, livingthereal.com. You can sign up for the newsletter and we're going to put up some new stuff soon. Thank you guys so much for hanging in there. We love you. We love the listeners that we have here and the feedback we get. Uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Take care. Bye-bye.